Welcome to Off The Fence. I'm James Fox. We're back. Another episode following another political party conference in the UK. Uh, last time we came back was just after the Labour conference. That's happened. That's out of the way. But now a Tory conference has happened. And we've been talking about that quite a lot over the next hour or so. Uh, sitting next to me, I've got Alex Maskell returning once again. What's up, everyone? And uh, for the first time in a little while, we've also got Freya Marshall-Payne. Say hi. Hi, I'm back, finally. Sorry about that. It's we'll good talk- to have you. We don't feel abandoned. We Thank don't feel, you, you know, we, we, don't, we <laughs> didn't take this personally. We're going to oh, just no. move on, be professional. We're going to go on with this. We're going <laughs> to slam through a few quick stories first. But coming up, we're going to be talking about Tory leadership. What's going to be happening there? How long Theresa May is going to last? Kind of like the current theme of this year, really. Like people were trying to guess how long she, she's got left. Um, we've got all that happening as well, plots to oust her. We've also got um, some talk about what's going on in Spain with the Catalan referendum and Catalan independence, where that's going, where that's leading. And also this massacre, this horrible massacre that happened in Las Vegas. Uh, we're going to be running some new information on that that Alex has as well, haven't we? Yes, or rather a continuing lack of information that presents some very interesting questions into what exactly the hell happened here? Yeah. So that's coming up quickly though if you only listen to us for the first time at off the fence talk is where we are on twitter and um, you can catch us on soundcloud soundcloud.com slash off the fence anyway what's happened first up uh bear grills was at a tory party conference you might have seen we did a tweet about this that uh went kind of very in a very small way viral he's very proud it's his first viral <laughs> tweet <laughs> and uh bear grills the chief scout people might know him for uh, drinking his own piss on tv and things like that well, he turned up at Tory conference just to give the Conservatives tips on how to survive. So that was quite amusing. Um, he was also pretty bold. He was like, you know what? Screw it. Can you just give us 50 million for the scouts? He literally was like, fair play, man. That's some balls. Like, I mean, public funding for you know children's services isn't exactly their thing. But, you know, it's worthwhile trying, I'm yeah. sure. But yeah, that was funny. We've also had a new leader of UKIP, if anyone had actually noticed whatsoever. Um, there was uh, yet another leadership contest for UKIP that brought out leader Henry Bolton, where everyone reacted to his victory saying, who the fuck is Henry Bolton? Because there was like seven candidates and whatsoever. There was uh, Amory Waters, who was the very reactionary anti-Islam candidate that failed um, to win the leadership. And um, people like Katie Hopkins and, and you know the Paul Joseph Watsons out there were like, UKIP's dead, it's done. It's done, it's over, the dream's over. So they were very disappointed in that. Loads of Amory Waters fans saying it was rigged, it was rigged, blah, blah, blah. But Henry Bolton turns up. First thing, what does he say? Right, guys, we're ditching the net migration cap thing. Which you're like, what? UKIP are ditching their pledge to cap migration. And you're like, is this guy a mole? Like, is, is this guy a Tory in, like, in disguise? Like, because then, you know, surely put yourself in the, in the minds of a previous UKIP supporter. A lot of them have already bolted for the Conservatives, right? Yeah. And, I mean, other, and other parties yeah. but what have they got left to sell the, like the, 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 the average UKIP minded voter if they're ditching their migration target I mean presumably they just go finally no caps they're just not letting any of them in <laughs> true true maybe it was just slightly easier than ousting Theresa May <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I don't see them lasting too long especially with this guy he does look like a, a Wallace from Wallace and Gromit's evil twin but they do have that handsome new logo of like Oh yeah, just a, a lion despairing for the state of this once great nation. <laughs> uh, he's also a former Lib Dem, Henry Henry Bolton as well. So he's getting loads of flack. Could you imagine a party that could someone be a former like candidate of that would be worse for being UKIP than being Lib Dem previously? Amazing. Anyway, Theresa May came out and a, a bunch of her previous aides came out with some interesting interviews and statements pre-Tory conference that I wanted to highlight now. First of all, there was Theresa May saying, you know what, you know, Tories really weren't ready for the uh, general election, which they, which, called which they called, yeah, which you called, you <laughs> called it, you called it, Theresa, and you weren't ready for it. Hindsight's twenty twenty, isn't it? <laughs> it's just unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, uh, they, they called it because they thought that the, um, the funding scandals were going to go further, didn't they? Like, was, wasn't that yeah. the root thing? I have no idea what they... I mean, it was all David Davis talking her into it, so... Uh, and the uh, the headspace of the Welsh Highlands. <laughs> um, what else as well? There was also her saying that, you know, you know what, there wasn't enough in the general election campaign? There wasn't enough debate, you know? There just wasn't enough debate. And at this point, I'm like, is Theresa May just, like, having a really big, fun time slapping herself in the face? Jeremy like, Corbyn did some great tweets. Yeah, he came out saying... Like, where were you? Like, Teresa, where were you? Where were yeah. you? I was there. Where were you? 
Do you yeah. think that there are any like red-faced Middle England fifty-year-olds going too right? There were barely any debates she was in. It was just <laughs> shut down by those momentum, you know. Yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah. the communists at the BBC. She wasn't allowed to speak. Poor woman. So there was that, and uh, there was also uh, Nick Timothy, who was like the mastermind of the manifesto. He he uh, he was uh, obviously you know someone who took a lot of blame for the. Uh, the general election result, you know, resigned along with uh, Fiona Hill. These were kind of the very small inner circle of Theresa May back then. And he did an interview with the Daily Telegraph where he said, we underestimated Corbyn, which uh, makes him sound like kind of a Sith Lord underestimating <laughs> some Jedi. But anyway, yeah, it's kind of funny. I found that, you I, know, so I like the idea of... Of course you underestimated yeah. him. We spent two years saying that this person was an insane radical who would never win. And if he did, it would be disastrous. But then we underestimated him. It's Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. There's a few other things that came out about the Tories is their, you know, their membership is completely dying. And one of the things that came out from was their membership is potentially below 100,000 now, which makes them a smaller party in terms of membership than the Lib Dems. They've released official figures for years now. 2014 or 2013 was the last time when it was 150,000 people. They just don't really like releasing it because it's just kind of you know peeling away. Meanwhile, um, the Labour Party's at what? 600,000 at this point? Close to it, running up to that. It's like 570,000. So basically going to be there soon. Um, I would say people are leaving the Conservative Party um, in terms of membership, but it, it's this might sound callous, but it's more likely that they're dying. The average age, according to the Bow Group research that came out recently, was the average age of the Tory member is 71. Uh, wow. There were some differing res- um, research that came out about a month ago, which showed it to be 57. So it's different, you know, different uh, research there shows them at different ages, but it's generally older. So that was one thing that came out. And it's saying, you know, they, uh, they're not going to have a campaigning force. They're facing oblivion, um, according to um, certain Tory campaigners that have come out uh, saying that, um, revealing that it is actually below 100,000. Another thing that happened uh, revealed from kind of Tory insiders is ex-Cabinet Minister uh, David Willits said that they risk permanent loss of the youth vote. And when you look at the disparities of, you look at the 18 to 24s or the under 30s, and there's 50-point gaps, 40-point gaps there. This is a, this is unprecedented. You know, Margaret Thatcher had a majority of young people, but you're talking 10, 20-point gaps there. 40, 50-point gaps is huge. Um, it's kind of unprecedented. Well, they've not done anything to win over young voters, have no, they? No. They just but they, not only have they done nothing to win them over, they've kind of almost gone out of their way to show that they're yeah, ignoring them. they just put up our fees and now they come out saying, oh no, actually we've frozen them, but they literally just raised them. So, you know, that's not going to win them any voters from young people, I've yeah. got to say. Yeah, but also just in general, when you look at the challenges that our generation is going to be facing over the course of our lifetimes, it's increasingly obvious that the ideology that they put forth and the worldview that they make decisions from the perspective of is the exact opposite of what we need. It's the exact ideology that caused these problems. And, you know, why would they expect young people to ever support them when the world that we're facing is one that they made and that they have put a huge amount of effort into destroying? Absolutely. Uh, last quick mention before we move on to the main stories is obviously another horrific event in the world, the hurricane that hit Puerto Rico. There's been so many hurricanes recently, I've almost lost track of the Irmas, the Harveys. And There's the... another one hitting tonight, I think. Exactly. Um, the, the, one of the most recent ones really hit Puerto Rico in a really bad way and kind of savaged that uh, US territory. And a um, particular thread that came up that really highlighted how severe out there was from uh, one Nelson M. Rosario. Uh, he's that on Twitter, his handle as well. And he was explaining an anecdote from his father who got in touch with him, who lives on the island, and essentially uh, made it clear that there was an intensive care unit on, in a hospital on the island somewhere, and every single person that was in that intensive care unit died in the, in the hurricane because um, they couldn't survive it. Um, and it's, it's a really... I don't know if that's the only kind of hospital intensive care unit out there, but in that particular one, obviously extremely fatal uh, the, the impact of that hurricane so and the, it's, it's amazing that this is happening in a like in an American protectorate yeah. in, a, in a in a on an island that is legally America these people are Americans and they're being left to die like yeah. this and I think that that says a lot about as climate change accelerates as these freak weather conditions become more and more routine this speaks to the kind of thing that's going to become routine in the world that we're stepping into. Yeah. It's going to be, oh, isn't this horrible? 
and then trying to move on to something else as conditions get worse and worse and worse in the aftermath. Anyway, let's move on to our main story. And uh, in case you didn't realise, there's a lot of talk in the UK media and UK press at the moment about uh, Theresa May's premiership and how long it's going to last, when she might resign, if she might resign, um, and how long she's going to last as Prime Minister. The most recent development of this is Grant Shapps, uh, ex-minister, MP for, I think, uh, North London MP, yeah, former party chairman as well. He's come out saying he's basically coordinating a plot to get rid of Theresa May. Come on to the events that have led up to this uh, taking place, but uh, first, a little bit about this plot specifically. He's come out saying this, quote, I think she should call a leadership election. The writing is on the wall. Uh, he's also said that cabinet ministers in private think she should go also, which is a without cabinet ministers uh, turning on her it's unlikely she'll step down and people were recalling the last time there was a big um, plot to remove a Tory leader which was Ian Duncan Smith back in the, the early noughties um, and back then as well um, there was a certain group that was all coordinating that and they've actually been forming the, the plotters in this potential you know ousting with of uh, Theresa May here. The Guardian reports, quote, the critics have been told by those who organized against Ian Duncan Smith in 2003 that patience is key. If they hope to oust the Prime Minister after the, this week's accident-prone conference speech, I'm sure people have heard about the speech. We could come on to that in detail in a minute, but essentially Theresa May had an awful conference speech and this is what's led to Conservatives feeling even less confident in her leadership Ian Duncan Smith, he, it took one month to depose him, so this is just uh, about a week or so or a few days after Theresa May's awful conference speech. And Similarly, Ian Duncan Smith, when he was ousted, he also had um, a terrible conference speech that led to it, but with him it was, it was a whole month after. So they're saying you know, patience is key. In that particular speech, you might remember he said this like, I can't even believe this one. When you hear him say it as well, it's like the most awkward thing. He said, quote, the quiet man is here to stay and he's turning up the volume, which is so cringeworthy, it's ridiculous. And also, the internal logic of that makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, this it's, is, it's all over the place. This is madness. Also, one of the key things that led to IDS's removal was donors backing out of the party, and Charlie Mullins of Pimlico Plumbers um, has come out, a similar donor these days, he's come out saying, quote, she needs to chuck the towel in. So, you know, that's just one donor. There's been plenty of other donors who have been supportive of May. So to give it a bit of balance there, but in order for May to probably ousted, one of the key signs you probably see is more donors like that coming out saying she's got to go. Uh, another minister, former minister and a Cameroon, he came out, Ed Vasey, who's actually the first to come out saying that Theresa May should step down or call a leadership election, uh, spoke to the BBC and he said, quote, I think there will be quite a few people who will now be pretty firmly of the view that she should resign. And he sees it increasingly difficult to see a way forward. Plotters are support attempting to get support from across different wings of the party. So this isn't just some Brexiteers saying we're going to get all the Leavers to go even harder on leave or this isn't a backlash of the more Remainer liberal ends of the Conservative Party. This is kind of a, quite a broad thing they're trying to bring together. And one of the things, the results of that is they can't really unite a around a candidate who would replace her. So it's basically them saying we need to get rid of this person because she's not satisfying our needs as Brexiteers or even our needs as Remainers. Um, so that's that's quite interesting. But it means they can't offer a, a candidate up and say this is a replacement, which kind of weakens their argument in that respect. One of the people supporting the plot told The Independent, quote, there have been lots of conversations and there are around 30 to 35 names. Grant Shapps has come out saying he's got 24 to 30 names. I always think in things like this, you've got to take the lowest of those numbers. Um, but this one particular anonymous source talking to The Independent says there's 30 to 35 names. Uh, the plan is to go to the whips and say we've got these names. We'd rather not write formal letters, but that is the time now for her to go and that she can go with dignity. Uh, when they're talking about letters there, what they're talking about is the 1922 committee, which is the kind of mechanism that was inside the Tory parliamentary party to get rid of a leader if they want to. It's a backbench committee made up of a few people. Graham Brady is the, the chair of it at the moment. And it means that when uh, MPs are unhappy with their Tory leader, um, they will write a letter to the 1922 committee. And if 15% of the total Tory party MPs do that, then it triggers an automatic ballot, an automatic leadership contest. So that's what they're saying there. We'd, we'd rather not write these formal letters, we'd rather just get her to resign with dignity herself, 
and then they, that will automatically trigger a leadership election anyway. What's the dignity in like barely being able to scrape a yeah. premiership after a guy who resigned after screwing up a Brexit vote who is mostly at this point known for allegedly, allegedly having sodomized a pig? Yeah, obviously. The, the, the dignity's been lost, but I think what they're trying to say there is even more dignity would be lost if they have to explicitly show that the MPs are turning on her and saying and out like I that mean, way. Maybe she'll have learned from like Corbyn over the course of this whole thing and when everyone's going, we really think you should leave. It's going to be terribly embarrassing if you stay. She'll just be kind of like, ah, I'm okay. Yeah. And then she'll just like completely fall on her face when they actually have a leadership election and no one votes for her. Like just someone's cat beats her yeah. with five whole votes. This is at the moment a, a minority of MPs, really. The majority of them have been rallying behind Theresa May, saying we've got to stick behind her. After her speech at conference, it's the same. And after this uh, plot that's become public from Grant Shapps as well, people are saying that it's the Tory whips that ousted Grant Shapps as the leader of this plot. Uh, because he essentially went to the, the, uh, the whips to say, look, can we have a meeting with Theresa May, potentially, to, uh, you know, talk about her resigning or you know have a private meeting like that and they were so hostile to it they outed Grant Shapps um, and there's been other MPs that have been angry at him about this um, really rallying behind Theresa May Nigel Evans MP spoke to the BBC saying this it's not serious at all it's quite irritating frankly it started off as a pathetic attempt more of a tantrum than a coup what Grant's got to do is just calm down Theresa has the legendary conference cold and when you get a cold you take strepsils you don't take a revolver <laughs> it's a complete overreaction by Grant he's had he, kind of implying there that this whole thing is just about Theresa May having a cold which it absolutely is no. not he's had his go and the bandwagon he tried to push over the Prime Minister is now rolling over him I understand fully why Grant feels disappointed that his greatness has been overlooked by the Prime Minister but let's be fair the vast majority of the parliamentary party of 318 MPs are not in the government when he says uh, I understand fully why Grant feels disappointed that his greatness um, there is a kind of uh, an arrogance thing to Grant Shapps that's come across in the media previously in a few other stories I think previously he said you know I'd love to be Prime Minister I'm wondering like they, the fact they can't unite around a candidate when really like if he's the one masterminding this Maybe he's thinking, if I make this happen, I can become Prime Minister. I'm not saying that happened. I mean, he he definitely isn't, but resembles, like, a grouchy bus driver who later gets outed as a paedophile. Yeah. Yeah, he's just a weird old man. It's, I don't know where he thinks he's getting off here. But. Yeah. May's speech uh, is kind of what's kicked this off. Let's talk about a little bit about now, because this is kind of the, the hilarious stuff. We couldn't not talk about Theresa May's conference speech. You've all seen it, right? Yeah. 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 It was good. I mean, the one of the most notable things that's come out of it, the thing that was on all of the front pages, was obviously Simon Brodkin, aka Lee Nelson, who gave a P45 mid-speech to Theresa May and said, Boris said to give you this. <laughs> this is from Boris. And then he then turned to Boris Johnson, high-fived him, shook his hand or something like that, gave him a thumbs up, which is just another hilarious moment. Uh, Amber Rudd, whilst he was doing that, basically like yelled in his face like, Please leave! Like, right in his face. And then all the Tories start going, Out! Out! Leave! Go! You know, booing him off. Which I thought was funny. And also Amber Rudd having to, in the middle of the conference, having to get Boris Johnson to stand up, like, prompting him, like, Get up, Boris! Clap! Like, they all coordinate the clapping together. The standing ovation. I love how publicly petty they are. I know, it's, it's She's insane. having to, like, bully Boris into doing it like a petulant child. The actual notes on the P45 were quite funny as well. I've got it here because a journalist scrambled on hands and knees to grab it. He was literally like barging past Philip Hammond, like move, like grabbing it off the floor. Whoever took a photo of it, it might be a BBC journalist or someone else. It's quite funny. Uh, on the P45, it says about the tax, total tax today, it says ask Philip. Um, on the reason for termination, it says neither strong or stable. We're a bit worried about Jezza. <laughs> and obviously it says it's from Boris Johnson blah 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 <laughs> um, but you know it was a funny stunt you know obviously some people really think it was funny the Conservatives obviously thought it was you know a petulant thing to do but aside from it being funny you know the important question is the lack of security there this guy got through security a lot of people came out you know blaming G4S G4S were like more than happy to very quickly tweet saying this was nothing to do with us like this is nothing to do with us and the police themselves have also come out saying this is literally all the Conservatives' fault. It's their vetting procedure for delegates 
that went through to conference um, that completely failed and they didn't have a strong enough vetting procedure because this guy, Simon Brogdon, you know, Lee Nelson, he had a delegates pass. He was completely through the system. Like, it was completely official. And uh, you saw people like Matt Zab cousin complaining on Twitter saying, you know, this guy got through. I wasn't allowed a pass. I didn't want to give people uh, a P45 to Teresa, which is quite funny because him and Bastani are always saying, we're going to give these 100 MPs their P45s to the next election. But, you know, yeah. you know he, he was saying, you know, I'm, I didn't want to get up on stage and interrupt Theresa May's speech to give her a P45. I wasn't going to do a stunt like that. I just wanted to talk about the impact of uh, fixed odds bet and gambling and, you know, the impact that's having. He wanted to be there for a, le- a legitimate cause, whereas, you know, this was a stunt. So some people were being blocked from getting through and this guy got through and the police even called the Tories out on that one. The other point on this P45 stunt was... Yeah, they can complain all they want, but this wouldn't have happened if if Theresa May uh, had fired Boris Johnson. And that wouldn't have happened if Boris Johnson had been, like, acting like a dick in the cabinet and, you know, rebelling against Theresa May. So Theresa May, could, you know, this type of thing wouldn't have been highlighted if um, Theresa May had fired him. And she can't fire him because she's lost all her authority. And if, if she did fire him, then he'd be even more rebellious as a backbencher so it's like rocking a hard place i feel like backbench boris would be like really entertaining yes very much so but uh in in the cabinet he's rebelling like this anyway and she can't fire him you know she said she he's not unsackable but clearly he is because she knows that if outside the cabinet he'll be even more rebellious all these people in the cabinet being paid to be there um, so that's one thing that happened in the speech that a lot of people caught a lot of people's eyes. There was also the the letters of the slogan behind Theresa May when she was speaking, literally falling off the wall, which is pretty entertaining. I think it was building country for everyone, and then the E fell off of everyone as well. But a lot of people, a lot of people didn't see after the camera stopped after the speech, the whole thing just started disintegrating, and then some like Tory like lady had to come and just like pack it all up, like pick them all up off the floor. The best part about that is all the theories that have come out explaining why it happened. There was a theory of the bracelet that Theresa May... It's like another side story. It just gets weirder. The bracelet that Theresa May was wearing had Frida Kahlo on on it. Paintings of Frida Kahlo, is that right? Yeah, Yeah, a number number of her paintings. She did uh, a lot of self-portraits. Yeah, Yeah. and she's a Mexican... Uh, Yes, yes, she was Mexican. Mexican communist, essentially. I didn't actually know who Frida Kahlo was until this thing happened. Did you know? she's an amazing woman painter. There's a really good film of her life that was made a couple of years back. But yeah. But she's a communist. You know, she was on Theresa May's wrist when she was giving this conference speech. She had an affair with Trotsky, and then when they (laughs) broke up, she became a Stalinist just to spite him. Jeez. (laughs) There you go. And that's on Theresa May. And people were saying, like, to spite Theresa May, that was the, the poltergeist of... Uh, Frida Kahlo knocking the things off the wall. It's the only logical explanation. Another explanation was that the conference hall for the whole conference was empty, or half empty, for every single speech. This speech that Theresa May did at the end of the conference was the first time that the room was full. Now, could it be said that the extra body heat supplied by the more people in there <laughs> was melting the, the letters off the wall? It's quite funny. I think the idea that these people give off any body heat whatsoever is deeply unplausible. Yeah. And then there was the uh, batshit uh, conspiracy theory from Katie Hopkins. She was like, it's a conspiracy by the BBC. They set it up, which is quite funny. I like the idea that it's just Frida Kahlo still being feisty from beyond the grave. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then obviously there was the cough that did not end did not end and then it ended and then it came back and then yeah it was as soon as someone started coughing like that it's very unfortunate it can happen to anyone um but there's the obvious metaphors of you know Theresa may's lost her voice she's lost her authority amongst the country amongst the conservative party there's there's that comparison that people have made but every time it came on that that cough that really that throat that you couldn't ignore um the conservatives had to be like clap her through boys clap her through clap her through and they all started getting up at points that like really didn't like need a standing ovation but they're like really we've just bizarre. gotta we've gotta fill the space yeah and well she's he, just we need to show that we support this dying woman yeah and, like- it, and that itself is there is a brilliant metaphor for the rest of the party they recognize that this woman is weak on stage they recognize that her authority is weak they recognize that she's not being a strong leader yet they're like this is all we've got we've just gotta clap her through we've got nothing else this is it this is the best we have um, so they have to go with it. And, yeah. they, you know, that's another metaphor for you there. I mean, is this going to be her collapsing on 9-11 moment? 
I don't know, but um, fucking Philip Hammond had to give it like a wine gum or some shit. Like it was just like, it was a car crash, wasn't it? The other thing with the cough is once you hear it, you stop listening to what she's saying. It's true, like all you can hear is the throat and the cough. So you, the substance of the speech was lost. What they were putting forward was pretty much nothing. You know, there was a bunch of policies she started off with, which were basically literally labor policies ripped off or basically Miliband-esque. A lot of the speech was kind of Miliband-esque. It was getting labor, poli uh, labor policies and making them labor light, capitulating to the labor agenda and, and essentially adopting watered down versions of what Corbyn is proposing. And in some cases, just grabbing them. So the, the organ donation thing. So basically, uh, it's going to be presumed that people want people are fine with their organs being used once they've died, rather than there being presumption that they don't. Um, so there's those things. But the most key thing that was pointed out was the housing policy, um, which is a good example of the uh, Miliband-esque kind of thing they were doing. And the big thing that people were waiting for was this announcement of council house building. They're going to announce uh, a big thing to revive council house building, which has been not in decline for the past 34 years, but barely non-existent in comparison to the private sector building homes for private rent. Sure, and even relative to you know, where they've been recently, where it's nothing post, like, rent to buy. Yeah. Even by those standards, it's fallen off hugely since the Conservatives were elected. So this was the big announcement that people were waiting for. What are they going to do on council housing? What are they, they're, they're going to be building more council houses. And what they announced, two billion extra for social housing, which translates to, in this parliament, 25,000 more council homes. What's that? That's 5,000 a year. And there was Labour MPs out there saying, that doesn't solve the housing crisis in my constituency. It's eight houses per constituency. That's what that translates as every year. It doesn't solve it whatsoever. Thousand people waiting lists in some areas. It's, it's insane that they even... Like, why, why do they even bother with this? Like, why do they even highlight... Like, it's such a weak source policy. Why, why even bother putting that out? It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not even a sticking plaster. It's not even something that goes to help the problem. It literally just, like shows that you're not taking it seriously. It's very unsettling, I think, seeing them trying to sort of almost solve a problem that they have basically exacerbated and, and almost caused yeah. over, you know, the last um, few years. And it's it's them going, oh, we're, we're going to do this thing, which is sort of like a token gesture. And, you know, why bother making a token gesture if it's not going to solve anything at all? Yeah. And it almost makes me more angry seeing this happening. And then they're still refusing to talk about the sheer number of people who are actually on the streets as well, aren't even just on waiting lists for houses, but haven't been processed to that extent yet in local councils. And it's a disgrace. Yeah. I mentioned earlier about the Miliband-esque policies, but... They even announced one actual Miliband policy, which they, they put in the manifesto for the general election, ditched in the Queen's speech because they lost their majority. And now it's returned, which is the energy price cap that was brought up by Miliband in his... And which was communism when he brought it Yeah, up. it was branded as Marxism, whether you looked at the Daily Mail or the rhetoric of the Tory party, uh, which is only, the same thing. Like uh, Daddy Ralph just finally coming through. Yeah. <laughs> it was branded as Marxist, and here we are with Theresa May, you know, famous Marxist, uh, putting forward <laughs> the energy price cap, which a lot of people are calling for, and it's, it's good that it's there, but it's this kind of double standard on how you can put policy out and how it's criticised. Anyway, after all this, you know, these, the announcements of these plots and the terrible conference speech from Theresa May and people, uh, you know, those vultures circling almost on her potentially, uh, she uh, did a very reassuring interview in a car park in Maidenhead back in her constituency saying, quote, what I think is necessary for the country now, what the country needs is calm leadership. That's exactly what I'm providing and I'm providing that with the full support of my cabinet. So, interesting. She's saying the cabinet are completely behind her. People like Grant Shapps are saying, privately, it's not the case. <laughs> There's some that would turn yeah, against yeah. The her. The entire cabinet is behind her in the most regicidal like, party <laughs> in British politics. Yeah, Just I mean, a party that loves killing its leaders. So, who knows? Maybe they'll, they'll get more people for this thing. They're saying, you know, if May does refuse to resign, they're just going to keep going until they get to 48, which could be like a month or two months. But if it, if it goes in that direction, maybe it'll go in the other direction. Who knows? Um, but a little bit more about the leadership contests of the Tory party specifically, so we know it, how we can expect one or what it's going to be like. We did only have one last year, but it, we already might be having another one again if you can't remember what happens. Uh, a leader can call an election if, if they wish. 
but normally uh, this method that we're talking about with the 1922 committee um, you have to uh, 15% of the MPs send letters to them and that triggers the leadership election um, that then goes to MPs for a number of rounds where MPs give their votes to the candidates and each time in those rounds the person with the least amount of votes is eliminated until it gets down to two and then those two candidates go to the considerably more right-wing and Eurosceptic uh, membership of the party which is now 100,000 people so it would be 100,000 people deciding who the next Prime Minister is going to be of course that didn't happen last year they never went to the membership Theresa May was just anointed uh, because everyone else dropped out through the Shakespearean play that took place yeah, yeah, they all had to take some time to spend a little more time with their cats. <laughs> but yeah, that's potentially what could happen. Uh, people have obviously mentioned about Boris as being a candidate. Boris has been losing support amongst the MPs across the conference season because of the smorgasbord of ridiculous things he's done and said. Um, saying about uh, the, the Libyan city of Sirte would be a great tourist destination as when they clear the dead bodies away. He spoke uh, a Rudyard Kipling poem in Myanmar when he visited that uh, area, uh, which references when it's under British rule. Extremely insensitive. Yeah, I mean, it, it's... And, it's, the, and it, the constant braying against Theresa May. Uh, yeah. He's lost a lot of support amongst MPs. So people are suggesting now that although he wins every single hypothetical matchup in the membership, he won't get through the MPs. And the question is, how many of the uh, Eurosceptic uh, candidates can the MPs block? And they can't block all of them. They can't block David Davis, Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg if they all throw their hats into the ring. Amber okay. Rudd, who's the kind of Remainer candidate that people are thinking uh, they should get behind. And after the election, David Cameron, John Major and a few other prominent Tories all like tried to get behind Amber Rudd in, in case yeah, yeah, yeah. Theresa but May resigned. Next election, Amber Rudd's going to lose a fucking seat. Like, what yeah, are they I mean, on about? Yeah, she's hired Linton Crosby to make sure that doesn't happen. Which worked out so well last time. <laughs> But the thing about uh, Amber Rudd is she loses every single hypothetical matchup against the other candidates that people are talking about. In order for her not to, she'd have to go up against them, maybe another Remainer or something like that. There's also the wildcard candidate that we put aside, Boris Johnson, Jacob Rees-Mogg and David Davis, as well as Amber Rudd. There's the wildcard candidates of someone from the new generation, Dominic Raab, James Cleverley, um, uh, the ex-army guy, I forget his name. His name's gone from my head. I've heard people might be uh, starting to move behind Andrea Leadsom again. Yes, this could oh. be a thing, which is uh, Leadsom for Leader was quite humorous last year, but it could be a thing. We'll see uh, what happens with the actual candidates. Speaking to The Independent, there was one MP close to the plot who said, quote, I think there is a lot of support for Amber. David Davis will stand up and have a go. Boris will be surprised by how little support he has now. This is going to be really good fun when this all happens. Yeah, it like, is, it is. After all the fucking drudgery that was, like, these increasingly incompetent attempts by Labour to try and oust Corbyn. Yeah. Like, it's going to be really entertaining to watch the vastly bloodier fighting that'll happen among the Conservatives. Because whatever you want to say about Corbyn, he was monolithically popular among the actual membership and... You know, among the people who make these decisions, none of these people have that distinction. So it's going to be long and drawn yeah. out and hopefully quite bloody. There is already a Wikipedia page for the next Conservative leadership election. And interestingly, Grant Shapps has a previous history of Wikipedia because he was accused of editing rival Tory MPs Wikipedia pages a few years ago and including his own one, like a lot, like wouldn't stop editing his own one. Beautiful. Because oh. Wikipedia blocks an account and it turns out the account was apparently either him or someone that was clearly under his direction. You can read those reports from a few years Excellent. ago. Excellent. This is a man who appreciates the mind war. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, there you go. We'll see what happens with that. It's likely there's going to be a leadership election sometime in the next year, potentially. At least, at the very... I mean, that's being generous, but as days go by, it comes increasingly more and more that uh, there's going to be one soon. And people are even saying that Theresa May could resign before the end of the year. But we'll see. We'll see. Let's move on to the next story from you, Freya. The north of Spain, what's been going on? Uh, Catalonia. So, um, basically, if you've been looking at the news, and um, specifically news about Europe in the last few days, um, you are bound to have seen reports about violence in Catalonia. Um, the issue at stake there was that there was a referendum held on the 1st of October um, for the people of Catalonia to vote whether they wanted to become independent from Spain or not. Um, in the lead-up to that, the Spanish government declared that it was unconstitutional 
um, because the Spanish um, political system is such that um, areas already have a lot of devolved powers and they said that for Catalonia to be able to leave they would have to be granted um, the agreement by central government and by the rest of the country to be able to secure that permission um, and they didn't but they went ahead with the um, referendum uh, approximately 35% of people in Catalonia voted and the reason largely that it was so low is because they were physically stopped, physically beaten, physically held back from getting to polling stations by Spanish civil guard who are the central police force who were sent in these huge cavalcades basically up to Catalonia from Madrid um, and um, they left with um, the national anthem playing, with people um, cheering them on, um, people yelling long live Spain, flying Spanish flags, a lot of the sort of tropes of nationalism and they entered Catalonia and they requisitioned um, the ballot boxes, they entered um, a headquarters for local government and they, they basically interfered with the process of this referendum uh, which went ahead and 95% of the people who managed to struggle through these police blocks and managed to vote, voted for independence. There's now a huge debate about how representative that yeah. is. And I think you can probably see the obvious issues at stake here. The Spanish government um, was then um, sort of treated, I suppose, to international calls for them to apologise for the violence. But the um, European Union basically hasn't fully condemned what they did yet and are not throwing their support behind Catalonia, making it look rather unlikely that Catalonia would be able to become a fully fledged independent nation in any real terms. Today, um, the Spanish Defence Minister, Maria Dolores de Cospedal, um, from the uh, Popular People's Party, uh, the Partido Popular, which is the right-wing uh, party in charge of Spain's government, um, issued a statement um, where she said that everything outside of democracy is a threat to our nation, um, very much positioning Catalonia as being part of the nation, something that must be held onto, cannot leave. And interestingly, she actually drew attention to Article 50 of the Constitution, which grants the armed forces permission to guarantee sovereignty within Spain and also independence of Spain from other countries. The fact that she mentioned that in the context of the Spanish government already having sent um, the civil guard, who are obviously the most extreme police force that exists in Spain and central government police force already in, is kind of worrying given that Spain has a history, obviously going back to the dictatorship, of um, putting down independent independence movements around areas of the country which have distinct cultures, distinct languages, like Catalonia. And so the left wing in Spain are um, have been rising up in um, manifestations of solidarity and within Catalonia itself as well to say that the um, government has a far right agenda basically against this and um, that it harks back to the dictatorship. Obviously, there, there are certain links that you can see there. And for those who don't know, how far back is the dictatorship? When was that in, in recent history? Um, so it was in about 78, the current constitution. Um, that was relatively recently, considering yeah. you know Western European politics and things like that. And, and it only ended, um, so it was a 30-year dictatorship after the um, Spanish Civil War, and it only ended when um, General Franco died, um, actually. And um, then the process um, of Spain becoming um, a democracy was a very fraught process with a lot of negotiation. Um, there was an agreement reached that none of the generals from the fascist era would ever be imprisoned or tried for their crimes, even though um, there were you know, mass murders, there were concentration camps, um, there were work camps, all of these things. And so there are very deep-rooted fears and angers within Spain and specifically within Catalonia because it was a traditionally more left-wing region which was very violently repressed by the regime that now seeing this sort of imagery again of violence um, the debate about Catalonia has become quite polarised along political lines. There's another element to it of course in that nationalism is being very whipped up in the rest of Spain and the Spanish media actually didn't cover um, the violence which was going on very well at the time. I think there was one television channel um, which did report it and showed live footage. Um, other television channels edited it and showed it later on so as not to cause widespread alarm. And this was horrific stuff as well. There was, you know, women, you know, elderly people 
uh, people just being ripped and thrown across the street. Yeah. There was, I mean, the most striking image I remember was firefighters giving a human shield between the people that were trying to vote, protecting those Catalonians, and the police there were just beating firefighters. Yeah. And the firefighters had their gear on, so, you know, they had a somewhat degree of protection, but it's just, yeah. you know, crazy. Just yeah. like police beating up Catalan firefighters who were protecting the civilians. Another thing that happened was that the local police force, the Mossos de Squadra, they protected the people who were attempting to vote. And so seeing a local police force trying to defend the people against a central police force is very scary and creates these very strong, strange images which people were sharing on social media and um, which were being featured by outside um, media sources, but not so much within Spain, worryingly. Um, another element to that is that now the head of the local police, these Mossos de Squadra, has actually been taken into court today and um, is being tried for sedition on sedition charges. Um, so things are escalating. Um, I read a very interesting interview um, in Jacobin, um, which you should definitely check out. It's um, with the head of the left-wing Catalan independence group. Um, who are trying to act as a sort of opposition force within Catalonia to the more right-wing forces which traditionally in about 2005 were leading the independence movement. They're trying to take over and one of the things that he was saying was that he sees reason to worry that the next step Spain is going to take is to um, take the army perhaps or maybe just the civil guard again into Catalonia, send more of the police force there and start arresting the key players and he said that this action to try the head of the regional police is sort of an indication that that is the path that Spain's following. Yeah. I mean, do you see yourself? I mean, I'm trying to, you're leading on to what might happen there and you know how bad it might get. It sounds like you see it kind of escalating and getting worse. Is there any path you can see where that, that doesn't happen? Like what paths can you see for de-escalation? I'm not sure how viable it is. Um, my hope would be that the political parties within Spain are able to follow a proposal which has been extended by Podemos um, and by other smaller left-wing parties, which is that there need to be assemblies um, between Spain, um, with the central Spanish government, and between Catalonia, and also listening to other um, regions within Spain, and that they need to find an actual democratic solution um, which maybe involves more powers for Catalonia, who knows, but that there needs to be actual dialogue. And actually there are a range of meetings happening across the country tomorrow involved in this, and there's going to be um, protests, also peaceful protests, um, calling for greater dialogue, but central government is basically saying, no, we will not dialogue about this, we, we condemn this um, referendum, it was completely illegal, we condemn what Catalonia is doing, and so, as far as I see it, if the President Rajoy continues this path of completely denying um, any self-determination, any democratic right to, to become separate and, and hiding behind the Constitution and saying democracy means we must all stay together, then I think tensions are just going to keep rising. Yeah, I remember okay. one moment I saw as well, the king dropped in, didn't he as well? Yeah, there was, um, there was I a... I didn't realise there's still a Spanish king. There is, yeah. Basically, he did a, um, a speech, which is very unusual. He usually only really speaks at Christmas. He doesn't tend to get particularly involved in politics. He uh, came out treading quite a delicate line saying, um, you know, Catalonia, you cannot become independent. Um, this isn't going to happen. It isn't a legal referendum. But also saying, you know, maybe there are some issues here that we need to pay attention to. Um, the thing that he also addressed um, was economic concerns um, behind it all. Um, so one of the worries people have had about Catalonia is that it was the strongest economic region of Spain and a lot of the headquarters of um, Spanish industry and Spanish businesses are based in Barcelona, um, which is in Catalonia. Um, some of them have now, in the last few days, come out saying we're going to leave. If you become independent, we'll go to Madrid or we'll go to other major cities. And the king addressed this, um, saying that there is a risk of the Spanish economy being terribly damaged if Catalonia is allowed to become independent. Um, are there other regions in Spain that have as much of a sense of independence as Catalonia does, or is this kind of a unique case? Because it sounds like this like it sounds like the nationalism angle is playing quite well elsewhere yeah no it, it's spain is a very interesting one because it's a very it's kind of quite an artificial nation state um if all nation states aren't yeah. very artificial um 
basically, if you go a very long way back in history to the sort of proliferation of Catholicism over the whole region, um, Spain became united, but it, it had previously had a lot of different national identities within it. And then um, through dictatorship, it was once again properly united with a very strong nationalist sense of Madrid being the center and other languages and other cultures within Spain being outlawed and not allowed to continue. So um, Castilian, which is the language that I speak, became um, the official language of Spain and the only one that could be used. With the end of dictatorship, the other languages were allowed to come back into force, um, but are still not used fully as officially in the same way. And um, there's been programs in um, places like um, the Basque region and in Catalonia and in Valencia to embrace their language again and to embrace their culture again. And they're supported by regional government. Um, and they're not so much independ independence movements as such, they're more celebrations of culture, but they are obviously linked to very strong independence movements in some regions. So people probably heard about the Basque region and the terrorism, um, which went on against the Spanish state and against the French state there. And obviously the Basque region still does have a very strong sense of national identity as distinct. Um, but I think the Basque region and Catalonia are the two main ones. Interestingly though, the Spanish constitution actually defines Catalonia, the Basque region, um, and also I think maybe Valencia and also Galicia as being separate nations, um, simply in terms of the fact they have distinct cultures. But it's very complicated because the constitution doesn't give them separate distinct rights because of their state of being a nation. So they don't have like devolved power like they do they, they the have, countries in the United Kingdom. They have do. the same amount of devolved power that any region in Spain would. Right. Um, so the executive power remains with central government and then they get power over um, certain laws that they can set themselves um, and they can make modifications to their education system and things like this. Um, but um, it's not as much as say being Scotland within the European Union. Okay, so there sense. aren't um, there aren't like inherent rights that they get to have as a result of being recognised as a nation. No, it's very strange. Um, it's one of the big debates that's happening now, which is sort of why are these specific regions recognised as nations in the constitution, but, but don't not in have... practice. Yeah, because um, I mean. Extremadura, for example, is um, the area that my family lives in, and that isn't recognised as a nation, and it has the same amount of rights as Catalonia, which is recognised as a nation. Um, so there's, you know, something strange at play there, where every region is said to be equal and also said to have a lot of devolved powers, um, but actually, in practice, it seems people don't feel like it's enough. We're going to move on to the next story now. Thank you. I, we'll see where things go with that. I mean, it doesn't seem too optimistic with. Uh, you know what's going to be happening between Spain and Catalan, but yeah, I'm we'll worried. See how it goes. But fingers crossed. Yeah, definitely. You're Thank up. you very much for coming in and clearing that up, and meaning I didn't have to try and muddle my way. Oh, don't worry, it's a pleasure. <laughs> Let's move on to you, Alex. Let's see if you can muddle your way through this, or see what we can find that's oh, this not be, currently known. This will be very interesting. Well, this is this is kind of a weird thing. It, it's days after the you know gun massacre in Las Vegas at the Route 91 Harvest Festival and there's still a lot of people trying to figure out exactly what the motivations of shooter Stephen Paddock were. Most notably, ISIS have claimed that he was one of their soldiers and there's a whole discussion we can have here uh, about the state of ISIS and what this says about them that we're going to be coming to first. Uh, first of all, we're going to have some background. Uh, so on the final day of the Route 91 Harvest Festival, just a few days ago, a retired man named Stephen Paddock fired out of two windows of his room at the Mandalay Bay Resort and Casino at the crowd of the festival. You know, his hotel was overlooking it, and he just grabbed a bunch of semi-automatic weapons that he had accessorized essentially to make them fully automatic, or functionally having a rate of fire equivalent to that of a fully automatic weapon uh, and just sprayed bullets down into the crowd for about 10 minutes. He killed a reported 58 people and wounded hundreds more and then killed himself once the police located his hotel. Um, he mostly used copies of the Colt AR-15 rifle which briefly came under some fire after it was used in the Sandy Hook massacre a couple of years ago. Uh, but ever since then, it's maintained its position basically as 
you know, America's most popular weapon. It's actually a semi-automatic version of the fully automatic M16, which the US Army uses. Uh, because fully automatic weaponry is illegal to own in America and I, th I think all states. That's Hence the modifications that he made to those weapons. Yes, uh, which actually skirts some interesting case studies. Just to define some terms, a semi-automatic weapon is a weapon that loads a new bullet into the chamber ready to be fired every time you pull the trigger. So you don't need to wait, you don't need to cock it or pump it or anything like that. You can just keep firing and then a fully automatic one reloads and fires for as long as you have the trigger held down. And so that's, that's kind of what would usually be an important distinction, except that these weapons, about a dozen of the 23 weapons that he had in his hotel room, just in case he could keep going, I guess, uh, about a dozen of them had been equipped with what are called bump fire stocks, which are replacements for the stock and butt of the gun, which allows basically the recoil from the shot to reload the weapon and keep the finger essentially pumping at fully automatic pace. So, you know, even though it's technically legal because your finger is still pulling every shot, at the same time you're achieving a much higher level of fire that essentially comes down to like a slow machine gun pace, which you know, in this case was devastating to this civilian crowd. And you did see a couple of completely absurd takes immediately afterwards where people were like, well, if the audience was, uh, if the audience was armed, yeah. it would have been fine because you would have had a whole load of like largely drunken people firing wildly into the dark night at the side of a hotel with small arms fire. Yeah. Which, and, and even if they'd realized that's where it was coming from, it probably would have been more likely they'd all started shooting at each other in the crowd thinking that there was someone in the crowd shooting which a lot of them admitted you know eyewitnesses said that's what we all thought was happening at first and if they all had guns they would have thought each other were the gunmen in the crowd right that too yeah. that too but even if they had it all figured out and spotted the guy and were shooting directly in his direction most of the weapons they would have had on them would not have had the range to actually be able to hit him and so it would have just been peppering the side of this hotel full of other people with just wild like stray rounds and so the weird thing about this uh there's been some like brief discussion about gun control but i think we all know uh that as depressingly i'm gonna have to quote fucking dan hodges here like after sandy hook people decided that like the mass murder of innocent children was the price they were willing to pay for owning guns and so after that the, yeah. the conversation is basically over for a generation so nothing substantial has come out of that there was also the emergence that he'd booked an apartment overlooking another open-air concert in, in Las Vegas. This was the Life is Beautiful festival. So it appears like if he'd lost his bottle here, he'd already set himself up with another opportunity. And I'm right in saying there's a third as well, Lollapalooza. He had been researching uh, how to get uh, how to get tickets for Lollapalooza as so, well, yes. So this setup where he's in a hotel overlooking a large congregation of a crowd, specifically a music festival, um, it's not something where he was like, I'm gonna uh, just shoot at these people and kill them because of there's a, a bunch of people there. It was this setup of a music festival with, or you know, a large gathering of people at a festival shooting down at them from a, a high building. Yeah, there was briefly a thing among right-wing Twitter where it was like, oh, he's shooting at a, at a country crowd. It must be because he thinks they're all Trump voters and he's some yeah. liberal communist. They even, <laughs> they even found some guy they assumed did it based on essentially no evidence yeah, whatsoever. I, I remember stumbling onto uh, r slash the Donald uh, when this whole thing was unraveling the day after. Always a good place to go. And just seeing threads of people saying, like one guy would be like, this has got to be Antifa. You know, it's got to be Antifa. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and then some, Antifa who one guy, are famous for shooting people, apparently. Yeah, one guy with a, a few more like uh, brain cells in his head was like, let's not be rash like the left. We need to have evidence before we uh, make accusations unlike them. Uh, and, and, you know, if you were in there like, this, is, this doesn't look like a Muslim thing. It could be a Muslim thing. And, and just like complete brain dead analysis um, of this, what's going on anyway. But yeah, um, the motives are unclear at the present moment, right? Yeah, this is the thing. He appears to have been unreligious, unideological. He apparently a couple of years ago knew someone who said he kind of had like an anti-tax, anti-government thing, which has prompted domestic terrorism in the past, in particular 
uh, most obviously the Oklahoma City bombing. And he was uh, a, a fairly uh, regular gambler as well. Yes, he was also a, a regular at the gambling tables because he was also extremely wealthy. Yeah. That was another weird but, factor. Of this. But that's basically it. There's not a lot more information other than that. And the speculation runs wild on the motives of this you know, gunman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, the sheriff of the county, of Clark County actively said, Stephen Paddock is a man who spent decades acquiring weapons and ammo and living a secret life, many of which will never be fully understood. Anything that would indicate this individual's trigger point and will cause him to do such harm, we haven't understood yet. He left no manifesto, he left no confession, there were no rants. There's always rants, you know what these people are like. I feel like the only thread left pursuing is his internet history, you know, which I'm sure the police will have seized by now and be trawling through to no end. Yeah, they're going to be coming through that shortly. But in the meantime, the weirdest... If there's, if there's nothing there, then that, that truly is weird. You'd expect there to be at least a few traces of, oh, he was watching, he was on these sorts of sites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, or they'll find some copy of the fucking Turner Diary sitting around his room somewhere. But what's and, weird... And that, but that would play into the idea of finding no other traces, because in the internet age... Previously, you'd, you'd, you know, there'd be some books, there'd be some possessions. You might speak about these things, but in the internet age, there's the capacity for someone to be disconnected about these views and only have them as an anonymous uh, pseudonym online or something like that. And and for someone to be very unsuspected, someone would do this sort of thing. So that's the only sort of lead that I can even possibly think of that the police haven't spoken about his internet history whatsoever at the moment. Yeah, um, and that that's the kind of thing you see a lot with a lot of uh, lone wolf terrorists inspired by groups like ISIS, which brings us to the weird part here. Almost immediately after the attack, ISIS claims that he was a soldier of theirs. Uh, which, nothing has been found to substantiate this. There are usually standards of evidence which ISIS themselves maintain fairly consistently. Um, you know, usually involving some kind of online proclamation of loyalty to ISIS and Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Uh, and usually they're fairly good at this kind of thing. This is something that uh, the New York Times' Rukmini Kalamachi, who's probably the best reporter on ISIS and topics of uh, contemporary Islamic radicalization. Probably the best source on that. Something she always says is their claims are generally very credible and they kind of have to be because otherwise, like, they would, like, their associated news networks would lose credibility at the first available opportunity. So they need to keep it on the straight and narrow. So the fact that they've made this claim is extremely strange because, as we say, nothing seems to indicate any amount of, like, Islamism or admiration for ISIS whatsoever. This is a 67-year-old man who didn't like the government and owned a lot of guns and lived in Nevada. That's not normally ISIS demographics. In fact, that's usually the kind of demographics of people who are terrified of and furious at an imminent ISIS invasion of America. So it's it's kind of fascinating to see this and to wonder what like what's happened that you know they're now making this claim. And presumably it's like ISIS is collapsing. Like, there's like 300 fighters left holed up in one corner of Rakar. You know, Al uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is definitely dead at this point. And just... It seems like in their collapse, they're just getting so desperate that they would glom onto this as some, like, completely unrelated tragedy that they're just claiming for their own. So, it's, it's extremely weird to see at once the intersection of like this bizarre violent american gun culture and the death throes of isis like contained in one story but there's so little else to go on in this story that stuff like that is always going to rise to the surface i'm sure there's gonna be a lot of speculation and a lot of theories uh, coming out and, uh, and a, a lot of wonder what's going on because it's very unusual for someone with no previous history of mental health uh, problems or no obvious motive or cause for this. No prior happen. convictions except for I think one speeding ticket. Something that's just come out from the Independent in the last few moments though is this. Uh, Paddock used to lie in bed screaming and may have been in mental anguish. Investigators believe the shooter may have been quote in physical or mental anguish. A former FBI official who was briefed on the investigation told NBC News. Another said the shooter displayed quote mental health symptoms. So you know, that could be good. Uh, he was described anti-anxiety drug in June. Uh, employees at a Starbucks near his Reno home recall him berating his girlfriend in public. But investigators do not believe his mental health was poor enough to have triggered an attack of this scale, officials told NBC. So we'll see where that rabbit hole goes and see what 
eventually comes out about this horrible incident that took place. Or, or more likely, in a week's time, some new absurd political thing will have happened yeah. and we will have largely forgotten about it. I wanted to end on a, a slightly more amusing note uh, on something we missed out on Theresa May earlier on. She did a private event at a conference and admitted something very interesting. Shall we hear what she had to say? She did indeed. Let's have a listen. The importance of some of those issues that we thought we had won the argument about over the years. Free market economies, the importance of fiscal prudence, wealth creation. We thought there was a political consensus. Jeremy Corbyn has changed that. And there we go. If you missed that, that was her saying we thought we'd won the arguments on so many things uh, to do with economics. Uh, and Jeremy Corbyn had changed that. We thought there was a political consensus on all those things. Jeremy Corbyn has changed that. Um, who a bigger authority do you want to say to admit that than anyone else? Philip Hammond also gave it in there to just to supply a little bit more of confidence. But extremely interesting that that was admitted by Theresa May to what is a private gathering at Tory conference. But you know, there's journalists in the room that filmed that little thing. It's extremely telling of where the Conservative Party stand. Anyway, we're going to finish with that there. This has been Off the Fence. Like we said, we're on Twitter at Off the Fence Talk. Connect with us on SoundCloud as well, soundcloud.com slash off the fence. Plus, we should be on YouTube by now too, Stitcher, a few other places. Uh, I've been James Fox. Thanks to Alex Maskell. That's perfectly right. Thank you very much. And thanks to you, Freya Marshall Payne, for coming in as well. Thank you very much. Cheers. <laughs>